Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everybody. Welcome to uh, another episode of Dakota Aquatics and Reptiles Show. Uh, today we have Kara Norris on uh, from bloodpythons.com. She's got an outstanding collection of uh, blood pythons and stuff. And um, I would like to welcome her on the show. Kara, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on, Andrew. It's uh, it's always exciting to get to talk about these snakes and, and share them with others. So I, I just really appreciate the invite. Well, thank you for being on the show. So um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your collection, and uh, we'll go from there. How does that sound? Okay. Um, our collection consists of the you know the three species the blood pythons and the two short-tailed python species so we have the red bloods and then borneo short tails and sumatran short tails and you know right now we have i'd say around 40 adult animals we've we've really kind of scaled our collection down in the past couple of years um and then we have just a number of of babies and raise ups and holdbacks and and that sort of thing um my husband keeps scrub pythons so those have kind of kind of taken over a little bit of room um, here on our homestead, and then our kiddo keeps axolotls. So we have actually a wide variety of animals here. Um, but my primary focus is the, you know, the bloods and the short tail pythons and, and the big, I guess, kind of effort that we have with those here is selective breeding, um, not only for temperament, which we feel is extremely important with all three species, but also appearance. Uh, and just, you know, really trying to make some beautiful animals that are predictable as far as temperament goes and very hardy and consistent in terms of the offspring that they produce, too. If someone were to purchase a, a, a blood python from you, what recommendations would you give them? Like, uh, which which one of the three species are are more hardy? Which ones are less temperamental? And which mm-hmm. ones do best in captivity for a beginner that's it not not a beginner but like someone who just wants to step into the blood python you know i think i think that the black sumatran short tails are always a really great place to start um some people call them black bloods although they're not truly a blood python they are a short-tailed python um they tend to be in my experience the most laid back um followed by the Borneos and then the Reds, I think all three species are equally hardy in terms of just ease of keeping. I mean, their husbandry is identical for all three, but the Sumatran short tails tend to be the most laid back just right off the bat as juveniles, in in my experience, in my opinion. You know, some of the Reds uh, definitely take a little bit longer to calm down, um, and some of the Borneos, I think it just varies from, from bloodline to bloodline, uh, but they can be a little bit just high strung as babies, you know, ultimately these snakes are all going to be a mirror of their keepers. So what you put into them is what you'll get back out of them. If you are willing to to take the time and and gently handle them and establish a husbandry routine that kind of lets the animal anticipate when it's going to be handled and and kind of know what to expect, then I think that you're going to end up with a a pretty easy animal to work with. Um, But just for someone who's just getting into them, I, I would really encourage them to think about the Sumatran short tails, the, the black Sumatrans, um, just as a good place to start. Now, as for what people would expect, would they, for size and, like, what size could enclosure would they need, things like that, what would you recommend? 
That's your size. Um, as far as for an adult? Yes. Yeah, because you Ultimately. Know, a lot of people get these stuff and then they see this, oh, it's so cute, it's so tiny, and then they get this mm-hmm. animal like five years down the road, they're like, I never expected them to get that big. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, you know, most of our adults, we keep everything in rack systems, and, and there are actually photos of our enclosures on our website. Um, if you go to bloodpythons.com and, and under the resources section, there's like this whole big article on husbandry that actually shows the cases. Um, we keep everything in racks from animal plastics that use the VE-175 iris tub, and that tub measures 52 inches long by 20 inches wide by 12 inches tall. And that is roughly the same um, footprint as like a four-foot by two-foot cage. So, you know, I would say that that something 48 inches by 24 inches is a really good rule of thumb as far as guidelines for an adult blood python. These snakes, you know, they really don't attain massive size until they get much older. Um, Of course, a lot of that is dependent on feeding. I mean, if you're sitting there and just pounding them with rats and guinea pigs and piglets and giant meals, then, yeah, you're going to have, you know, a six-foot, 40-pound monster on your hands. Um, and, and a big snake like that is going to need more room. I think that some of the, the truly big, you know, six-foot-plus blood pythons that I've seen would be even more comfortable in a six-foot enclosure, but those are more of the exception than the rule. Now, is it so true when they're little they don't... A... Oh, go ahead. Okay. Is, is it true when they're little that they don't... Uh that a smaller space is better for them because the, if it's a wide open space, they can stress out or is that? Yeah, that is very that? true. It, no, it, it is very true. I think, it, you know, um, I think it's really true for a lot of snake species, not just the bloods and short tails, but they, they definitely do appreciate smaller enclosures um, as babies. But two of the biggest issues when people contact me and they say my, you know, my baby blood python isn't eating, it's usually because the cage is too big or else it's too warm. So I start everything off, um, in fact, this year we switched to the Vision V18 tubs, and that's a tub that's 18 inches by, I want to say like seven and a half inches wide by three inches tall. And uh, that's just a really good tub size to raise them in. You know, it's it's not a big footprint. It's not a really roomy enclosure, um, but at the same time they have room to to stretch out and to move around. And, And I mean, I had babies that started feeding right off the bat in those tubs. Uh, previously, I was keeping them in like a six-quart shoebox tub for starters and um, didn't really see any issues in the transition from the six-quart tubs to the slightly larger V18 tubs as far as, you know, hatchlings starting to feed right off the bat. So I think that that's a really good size. Um, they definitely appreciate not being overwhelmed with enclosure size or with warmth. So in a smaller cage, we we don't give them a basking spot. We just kind of keep them in an ambient temperature of 82 degrees and, and they thrive. They do really, really well. Now you talk about temperature 82 degrees. Is that for the, the babies the same temperature? And do you I, have I, like keep, a, I keep everything. I keep everything between 80 and 82 degrees. Um, you know, adults, babies, everything. We do give them a little bit of a temperature drop at night. Like it might get down to 78, 79 from time to time in, you know, cooler times of the year. But, I mean, ultimately, we just keep everything between 80 and 82 for the most part with no basking spots, and and they thrive. These snakes really do prefer to be cooler. Um, They don't like to 
have the 90 degree basking spot and the 86 degree ambient temperature and that, that's a real good way to end up with a, a stressed out and irritated blood. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Do you guys provide a, a basking spot? But no, you said you don't. Now, Wait, you uh, know, as for, for the humidity. Now, for adults, <clears throat> some adults we do. Before we before we jump into humidity, I will say, like, for our gravid females, um, or say we just, you know, we have some snakes that just do show a preference for slightly warmer temperatures, we will give them a basking spot, but the basking spot's only 86, 87, 88 degrees, somewhere around in there. And we measure oh, that so with a temp gun. A- it's not a huge jump in temperature. Like Mm-mm. some people no. put a really hot, hot spot in there. But now, right. as for humidity, what should the humidity be in there in their cages um, for babies and for adults? Is I, it different, or is it the same? My uh, the same uh, baseline humidity for everything is about sixty percent, and I do run humidifiers in our rooms uh, year round. Um, a lot harder in the winter than they do in the summer. So I, I just set them to a certain level, and whatever it takes to, to achieve that level, the humidifiers kick on and off. Um, but I like to see 60% as kind of the baseline humidity. I think when we keep it right around that level, we get nice sheds, and we you know don't see any kind of respiratory irritation. Uh, when blood pythons are kept too wet or too dry for extended period of time, um, you know you run into a higher incidence of respiratory problems. I know that kind of one of the big husbandry myths with these guys is that, oh, they get, you know, they get sick really easily. And and that's not the case per se. It's more of when they are exposed to improper husbandry conditions for a long period of time, then, then yes, they are more prone to illness. Um, but I, you know, again, the same is, is probably true for any species. So 60% as a rule of thumb, um, then when I see a snake going into shed, then I'll, you know, I'll go in and, and spray them daily uh, until they shed. And just, I mean, I'm talking taking the hose from the, the sink, you know, with the mister on the end and going through and wetting the cage down to the point where if I do that in the morning, then by night the cage is, is dried back up so they're not just sitting in puddles of water. Um, but I do that and they, you know, get nice sheds and, and no issues there. See, now I can see trouble back. 30 years ago when they were catching most of these from the wild, and now that they're all mm-hmm. captive bred animals, they thrive much better. Um, mm-hmm. Now, when it, what kind of substrate do you put them on? My two favorite substrates are craft paper and coarse-grade sandy chips. I have tried everything under the sun, from cypress mulch to aspen to pellets to newspaper to paper towels, and I just I like craft paper because it's a little bit heavier um give them multiple layers of that in during breeding season uh like now i always put my females on paper and then i'm introducing you know males into their enclosures for babies i will put them on either paper towels or indented craft paper to start and then you know when when i when they're kind of in that raise up phase from like a year to two years old um then we'll typically put them on the coarse grade zany chips uh, can you kind of talk us through your breeding season, how you start, with, how do you know the proper size the female needs to be, and kind of talk us through what you do to get them prepped for breeding season? You bet. Um, my rule of thumb for females is a minimum of three years and 12 pounds. Um, that's kind of where I like to see them, you know, again, baseline minimum. I'm not in a huge rush to breed every snake that, that I have. That's that's never been the way that Ryan and I have approached our collection. Um, I mean, there there are females that I have not bred until they were 
four or five, six years old, just because I didn't, you know, didn't have the perfect male in mind for them and sometimes had to wait to hatch something. So that's why I say, you know, in terms of maturity, um, I think three years is, is a good baseline. Um, I have bred females that were slightly smaller than 12 pounds. I've, I've had some throw beautiful clutches in the 8 to 10 pound range. Um, but as far as I think, you know, just a good size to start off that will give you a nice clutch and, and not leave the female too worn out at the end of it, I think 12 pounds is, is a nice weight uh, to start. You know, some of my older girls that are six, seven, eight some 10 years and older are up closer to 20 pounds or over. Um, So it just, it really kind of depends on the size and age and condition of the animal. But that's, that's my rule of thumb as far as girls, boys, you know, I I'll breed them at two years. If, if I feel like they're ready, if they have the, the age and the size and the maturity and they're ready to go, some of them, again, I don't breed until they're four or five or six, just waiting on, on that perfect snake to breed them to um, just because I don't really believe in, breeding animals just to breed them it should always be to make something better than you did the year before. So typically um, my approach is I feed kind of sparingly throughout the year, you know, once every 10 to 14 days and, and they'll get like a large rat on that schedule. And then as we get closer to starting to cycle, so when I get into August, September, typically um, then I'll, I'll move feeding to every week. And the meals might be slightly small, smaller, like a medium or a large rat, instead of you know something large. Um, I apologize for the bird in the background; he's a little, a little excited. Um, so anyway, August, September will go to weekly meals, and then usually within the first couple of weeks of October, I'm taking them off of food, and that's when I start changing light cycles and gradually start cutting back from you know 12 hours of light a day to five or six by the end of October or, you know, mid-November, just kind of depending on where the season's panning out that year. Um, I I go off of light cycle more than I do temperature. So I like to see, you know, six hours of light a day and maybe 78 is is the lowest that I'll cool them um, as far as just temperature cycling. I do a lot of misting with cool water, you know, go in and, and spray them down and play with humidity and, and just really the focus there is to let the snakes know that, Hey, something is changing. You know, the seasons are changing, your environment is changing and that, and that's a trigger that really lets them know, okay, let's, let's go make little snakes. Um, after, you know, say a, a month of, of that, then I'll usually start pairing snakes up. November 1st is usually when I start pairing and a lot of, a lot of people are in the, race to kind of pair things up and get them bred and hatch stuff out as, as quickly as possible. But I just, I like to let my snakes tell me what, you know, kind of where they are and what they want. Um, so typically November 1st is when I start pairing and I will introduce a male to a female's enclosure. You know, when I see breeding activity, I'll leave them together until that stops and then I'll split them up and then reintroduce, you know, several times throughout the season until they're no longer receptive. And then come, Typically by March, um, I'm warming everything up and extending the light, you know, the light cycles back and uh, start feeding up my females again and and kind of watch them closely for ovulations and and see where things pan out from there. And that's the same for all three species. Now, after you see a a visual lockup or whatever, uh, how long is it before you see eggs? And then after the eggs come, what do you do with them? How do you incubate them, and uh, how do you set your eggs up? 
Um, you know, it's kind of funny. A lot of people ask me after after you see a lockup, how soon do you see eggs? Uh, blood and short tail pythons are the masters of sperm retention. I've I've seen snakes lock up and not do anything again for four months, and then later on down the line, saw an ovulation. I think the record on that, you know, for viable clutches is, is like a year, if not longer. Where, where a female can retain sperm and then ovulate later on and, and have a viable clutch. So I don't just go by lockups. You know, I'm I'm looking to see is the female building follicles? Is she growing follicles? Is she playing behaviors that would you know lead me to to believe that there's something good in there? Can I palpate? You know, am I feeling? something in there, whether it's follicle growth or whether she's already ovulated and, and there are eggs, that kind of thing. I mean, when a blood python ovulates, if you're paying attention, it's pretty easy to see. It looks like they swallowed a football, if not a piglet. You know, it's they can they can be pretty huge depending on the size of the clutch. Um, so that's really what I'm looking for is ovulation. Uh, because once they ovulate, whatever's in there is coming out, whether it is, you know, you get slugs, which are infertile, or I'm sorry, not infertile, they're immature ovum that were not... Um, of a ripe size or, or age to be fertilized or else you get duds, which look perfect and, and just no veining, you know, nothing in there. And that usually indicates um, a lack of viable sperm or you get, you know, perfect eggs with beautiful veining and, and just a nice big wonderful clutch, which is always the, the end goal there. Um, so typically, you know, if I have snakes breeding, let's say from November through February as a general rule, I'm typically seeing ovulations anywhere from, February through April. I've, I've had some much later in the year. Um, these snakes will pretty much breed any time year-round. You just kind of have to be watching and listening for, for what they're telling you in terms of when they want to breed. Um, once a female has ovulated, she will shed approximately two weeks after that. And then I'd say on average about 40 days after that post-ovulation shed is when, when we typically get eggs um, I know with ball pythons, it's usually in like the 30-day range. Bloods and short tails like to go about another 10 days out from that, depending. Um, but I'd say on average, you know, we probably see eggs 40 days after um, that post-ovulation shed. When we get eggs, um, my method is, is pretty old school. I'm, you know, vermiculite and water by weight, and I put eggs directly on the vermiculite and put them in the incubator at 88 degrees and, you know, close to... 100% humidity, depending on, on the egg box that I'm using. And I check them every couple of days and ventilate the egg box. And usually right around 60 days, 58 to 60 days is when we, we typically see babies. Now, do you set up a nesting box for the uh, female? You know, I, I, used to, I, I used to, and, and they would lay behind the box, they would lay under the box, they would occasionally use nesting boxes and, and I've you know, I've had some females that totally appreciate nesting boxes and that use them every time they're offered. Um but now I, I don't. I just give them extra layers of craft paper to kinda of hang out in and and that has worked out really well for us. So I heard that uh sexing baby blood pythons is kinda of tricky because if you don't know exactly what you're looking for Sometimes the females look a lot like the males do. Is that true? Mm -hmm. That is true. Um, you know, the the females do have these, a lot of people refer to them as scent glands, uh, otherwise known as hemipineal homologs, um, that are can be very pronounced and very big. 
Um, and really, the I think the only way to to really gain an eye for what you're looking for there is is to have a mentor show you, and and then to sex a lot of baby bloods and short tails. Um, you know, if popping doesn't doesn't work, then probing is always an alternative. I think as they start to get a little bit bigger, probing always gives you a little bit more of a consistent result than popping. But usually, we like to pop them right out of the egg, and then we will. Um, you know, set them up according to sex. We'll have like a bin of males and a bin of females and kind of leave them together for a little bit until we set them up individually. And if there are any tweeners, then, you know, they kind of go off to the side and then we'll we'll probe them when they get a little bit bigger. Okay. Now, where do you see blood pythons in the hobby here in, let's say, five years from now with all this legislation they're trying to pass against reptile ownership and stuff like that? Do you see any problems coming uh down the pike here for them yeah i honestly i see problems coming down the pike for for every species whether it is blood pythons whether it is ball pythons corn snakes dogs cats birds you name it i mean ultimately the the goal of the radical animal rights agenda is to end all human and animal interaction uh, they don't want us to have pet dogs. They don't want us to have pet cats. They don't want us to eat chicken. They don't want us to have any interaction with animals whatsoever. And so I think that, you know, not just speaking from the perspective of a blood python keeper, but I think anybody who enjoys interacting with animals at all needs to, you know, really step up to the plate and get behind groups like USARC, like PJAC, like some of these, you know, like NIA, um, some of the different, you know, special interest groups that are out there really trying to protect our hobby and protect our industry. Um, do I think that blood pythons are eventually going to get on the radar? I, I do, to the same extent that, you know, probably all animals are going to get on the radar. I don't see them as being a major issue in the short term, like we see with retics and anacondas and boas and that kind of thing, um, partially due to the fact that they just don't get that big and partially due to the fact that I, I don't think most legislators are even aware of them. They're not like a, a high drama species. Like, you know, people think anaconda dun, 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 or boa constrictor, you know, there there's those species have already kind of been presented in a way to, to give them some bad press and to paint them in a negative light and, and try to stir up sentiment there. Um, you know, and, and bloods just don't have that same that same kind of dramatic value to them, at least not yet. You know, I'm sure someone at some point will take blood python and run with it. But ultimately, we all need to be very aware of, of what the the agenda is for these, you know, these radical animal rights activists or rah-rahs, as I like to call them. Um, and, and that is that ultimately they don't want us to have any animals whatsoever. And they just think animals should, you know, all be wild and free and that we should all be forced to eat tofu. So if you don't think it's coming, then you're fooling yourself. Yeah, I have to agree with you there. Um, <clears throat> why don't you give a shout-out to your website and to uh, your Facebook pages that you have? Yeah, you bet. Um, the website is bloodpythons.com. It's pretty simple, easy to find. And our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash v.blood.cell. And, uh, you know, the reason for the two names there, when, when we started off, my website was bloodpythons.com, and it had always been, and, and it just I didn't really have a name for my collection. And my husband, uh, Ryan Norris, he had owned and operated the blood cell for several years and actually how we met 
uh, was breeding blood pythons. And uh, eventually, you know, we decided to work together on some projects and combine our collections, and the rest was history. So that's why it's kind of a joint effort between bloodpythons.com and the blood cell. And uh, so that's why you see kind of both names on the website and the Facebook page. Okay. Uh, I just want to change subjects here. I noticed that you have great veins. I yeah, love some great veins in my day. I love great veins. I also have bull mastiffs. I'm a big dog type of guy. So uh, tell us a little bit about your your, your great veins. Oh, well, I've only been into the breed for, oh, since 2011, so going on four years. Um, kind of kind of happened on them by accident. My husband said, hey, let's get great names, and I said, okay. And he said, you know, I think we should get some show quality dogs. And I said, well, if we do that, then we'll probably be expected to show them. And so we started talking to different breeders and went to some dog shows and got to know some people and ended up with a, a couple of really nice puppies to start with. And uh, our our first show dog was named Murdoch, and he went out and finished his championship in seven weekends. Um you know, at 15 months of age, he was just a great dog. He he won every time he went in the ring, and it was just he was a lot of fun. And unfortunately, we lost him um, last a year ago, last January, to pneumonia. It was very unexpected and, and just very heartbreaking. Um, this past summer, we got a brindle puppy named Wyatt, uh, Miravali Lisu's Charmed Horses, and and he's just he's just a ball of fun. He's going to be um, my agility dog and, and hopefully do some rally and things like that. He's very athletic and very, um, likes to climb on things a lot. So he just, you know, he'll, he'll be a performance dog in, in, in addition to a confo dog. And, uh, he's just super smart and gobs of personality and a lot of fun. And we're hopefully building a house, uh, starting in the next couple of months. And, and after that happens, we have some plans to add a few more Danes and perhaps a Neapolitan Mastiff or two to, uh, to our pack. I, I, just beautiful animals. I've seen them on your they, Facebook page, and it's just thank you. Yeah, I love they're, the they're really dogs. special. They're just I do too. You know, there's some the giant breeds that it, it's go big or go home. I don't necessarily feel that it the the same way about snakes, <laughs> but when it comes to dogs, it's I think once you've been around the giants, they uh, they really steal your heart and they really kind of just worm their way in there and grab a hold of you, and it's kind of hard to have anything else after that. So yeah, we had a. English Mastiff, we had about, uh-huh. I'd say, eight, nine years, and then just, you know, they get older. The bigger dogs don't live as long uh-huh. as the younger yeah, dogs do. Yeah, so. they don't. It's so sad, for sure. And then now we went out and got a Bull Mastiff about mm-hmm. two months ago. He's, he's seven months old, going to be eight months old, and he's just the greatest dog ever. We love him, so I That's do appreciate awesome. the name? bigger dogs. What's but, your Mastiff's name? Uh, Leonidas. Love it. That's what, yeah, you got to have the big impressive name for these guys. So yeah. they, they're definitely special. And our English master is Sebastian. So, oh. but uh, I would like to <laughs> <laughs> thank you for coming on the show, and you uh, bet. I'd like to have you on again later on. Yeah, love that. Uh, you're a great guest. So, well, thank um, you so much. Yeah, as our season progresses, we have some stuff to hatch out and share. I'd be, I'd love that. Okay, that would be great. Um, I would like everybody to check out her web her web page and her Facebook page, and uh, that's uh, bloodpythons dot com. And what was your Facebook page again? Our Facebook, if you just go on to Facebook and search either the blood cell or blood, I should pop up. 
Um, but it, but it's Facebook B dot blood dot cell. And uh, thank you for joining in, everybody. And uh, it was a great show. And again, thank you for coming on. You bet for having me. We uh, look forward to talking to you again soon. Okay, thank you. All right, thanks. Have a great day. All right, you too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.